And uh, Merry Christmas, too. I forgot to say that. It is good to be back home. Boy. Whew. Thank you. I, I do want to thank you all for praying, uh, especially as I was developing some kind of sickness while I was in, uh, actually started in Egypt, went all the way through Lebanon, made it back to the United States, uh, had a COVID negative test, all that good stuff. So praise the Lord. I made it back. Um, it was just an incredible trip. Um, you know, I'll make a video later on highlighting some of the, th the big highlights of the trip. We'll send it out um, through the email system. But I just want to tell you that we are doing a great work in partnering with these chaplains over in Lebanon. I have a picture on the screen to give you an idea of is there a picture? There it is. Thank you. So this is a picture of our chaplains. Um, you'll, you'll see Bashara there. His wife, Rula, is over on the far left there. They're the area directors, uh, so they're overseeing actually the Middle East and North Africa region. And then I'm standing next to Eli, and next to Rula is Rula's sister, Katia. So those are your chaplains in Lebanon, and they're doing a great work. They are faithful diligent, godly Christians. I, I, I met a man in their local church, and he was a former inmate. He had been in prison for 29 years. He had gotten into drugs and even uh, committed murder, and he spent 29 years of his life in prison. He said that when these chaplains walked into the prison, their biggest prison in Lebanon, Rumia, it was like a light was going into the prison. And he came to know Jesus as his Savior. He came from an Islamic background, came out, and he's plugged into a local church. We've got to be praying for both of the countries that I visited, Egypt and Le Lebanon. They both present their own unique challenges. In Egypt, it's illegal for a Christian to share the gospel with a Muslim. Now, not vice versa. A Muslim could share their faith with a Christian. So the Christians in that context... As they're doing ministry, they're, they're putting their lives at risk to do ministry. Lebanon is different. You can share the gospel in Lebanon. It's perfectly acceptable. But they're facing just a, a total economic crisis. You might remember two years ago the Beirut explosion that took place. Uh, in addition to that, you remember the war that was taking place in Syria and a bunch of the refugees that left that country. Well, Lebanon is a country of 4.5 million people, and they absorbed in that conflict 1.5 million refugees. And in addition to that, their banking system collapsed. So their uh, salaries depreciated by some 1,000 to 2,000 percent. We were talking to one prison warden, and he said the, the guards were essentially making a very good living prior to the collapse. It was equivalent to 3000 U.S. dollars. That depreciated down to $150. I mean, just imagine trying to make bills and put food on the table and all the stress that that puts into your world. So you're seeing the effects of that all throughout the country but at the same time, you also know that God works in the midst of disasters like that, that he opens eyes and hearts to see the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm just hearing report after report of 
people that are turning to Christ because Christians are providing real care in the midst of that. So let's just be praying for those two countries. In fact, let's bow our heads right now and ask the Lord's favor. Lord, Psalm 67 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us, that Your way may be known on earth, Your saving power among all nations. Lord, the purpose of the nations coming to You is explained in verse 3. It says, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. When the nations come to you, you receive the glory you are due, and the people, they share in your glory. They find their true identity, their true purposes, and the joy and peace that comes with knowing the Lord. And so, Lord, we pray that people both in Egypt and Lebanon would continue to come to you, one point of access that, that is so significant there is in those prison systems, Lord. Such dark places, and yet your light shines forth through chaplains and Christians going in to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Reminded in Luke 4 what the Lord said. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And if that was Christ's mission in His coming, Lord, it ought to be ours too. So we pray that we, Osterville Baptist Church, would be about those things in our ministry, not just throughout the world, but also here locally too, Lord that we care for the prisoner, care for the poor, but most of all, that we would give that life-giving gospel to our friends, neighbors, and loved ones who have never heard about Jesus. We love you, Lord, and we're grateful to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to pick up in our series, uh, Miraculous Births. You can open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1, 1 Samuel 1. And I want to thank Harry for introducing us to this series. He, he was so adaptable. He was supposed to be preaching on John the Baptist, and when this trip came about, he so graciously offered to take the first sermon, and what a wonderful job Harry always does with the Scriptures. If we learned anything in the sermon about Isaac, it was that he was the son of laughter. And it was so true. I loved how he traced that through the story of Isaac's life. And if you were going to give Samuel a name, I want to suggest that we could call Samuel the son of deep, heartfelt prayer. That's really what leads up to the birth of Samuel. Now, I know many of us, when we go through the Christmas season, we, we look forward to this holiday. It's, it's a season of festivities, of joy, of smiles, of laughter, of memories, there's some people who, of course, experience it quite differently. It's not a time of year that brings about the happiest of thoughts or memories. In fact, for some people, the goal of Christmas is just to get through it. Because all of that nostalgia, of course, brings up thoughts and memories of loved ones. And I want to tell you this morning, if you're in that space in the Christmas season, 
that Hannah is someone in the Bible that you can relate to. Because before Samuel ever entered into her world, Hannah went through her holiday season every single year, and it was a source of bitterness and grief and even misery to her. We'll, we'll pick up in verses 1 and 2, and we'll see the source of her sorrow. It tells us that there was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Athrophite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now it turns out that infertility is a common theme in the Bible. You'll see that over and over again in this series. As you look through the Bible, you have various women, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, the wife of Manoah, who happens to be Samson's mother. You have Elizabeth. Over and over again, the, the Bible is showing us stories where God overcomes desperate situations and, and brings about his miraculous plans and promises. Now, we read those stories, of course, and we read the story from the end. We look at it and we say, oh, isn't that incredible how God worked in this person's life and he brought about this great redemption of their tragedy. And of course, we see that it all points to Christ. That's how we have Miraculous Births, a series at Christmas on these stories. But remember, these women didn't live at the end of the story. They're living in the middle of the story. And it's, it's a devastating reality that they're suffering with here in this culture for a woman. There was nothing more embarrassing than the reality that you could not produce a lineage. Children were everything. They were the future. When you raised children in your home, they would grow up and they would be able to contribute to the work of the family. They would take care of the parents in their old age. They were like your retirement plan, if you will. And even beyond that, they were the ones that were going to carry on the, the lineage, the legacy of the family. So here you have this woman, and she can't even fulfill her raison d'etre. What do you do with troubles like that? We're, we're talking about troubles that hit you at the identity level. Troubles where you think, I'm not a whole person. I'm not a full person. What do you do with your troubles? As you look at the Bible, you really have two routes, two avenues that you can deal with your troubles. One, one option, of course, and a lot of people take this option, is you can try to manage your troubles. You can throw money at them. You can try to work through them. You can plan. You can strategize. You can grind your way through your troubles. Does that work out all the time? Most of the time, no. The second option is you can look at your troubles and you can say, your troubles belong to the Lord. Now, which option do people tend to take? Well, mostly number one. 
Elkanah did that. He did what was very logical in this culture. If you think about the story, most likely Elkanah and Hannah were married at a young age. And over years, year after year, they would try for a child. They would hope for a child. They would pray for a child. The child doesn't come. So what do you do? Well, they don't have infertility treatments or anything like that. So he does what's logical. He marries a second wife. And it only adds to the bitterness of Hannah's situation. Let's pick up in verse 3 and we'll see that. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peniah, his wife, and to all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously and to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So if you're in that space where Christmas is a bitter season for you, again, notice that Hannah is enduring the same type of dynamic. This, this opportunity to go to Shiloh, it's a yearly event. It's supposed to be a high point in the religious calendar. You would go off and, and bring the, the breast of your sacrifices, offer them up to the Lord, probably singing songs to the Lord, offering prayers to the Lord, and then they would have this time where Elkanah is handing out gifts to the children and to his wives, and you're supposed to be celebrating, and, and all she can do is think about what? What's missing? What's absent in case she ever forgot it? Her rival would also make sure that she remembered. And you can imagine what this scenario looked like. Paniah's watching all the food be distributed, and then she just says a little too loudly, oh my, good, all of you children have your food. Oh, there is just so many of you. Isn't it amazing? how God blesses. I mean, when He blesses, He blesses. And you know how children are. Children can state the obvious so matter-of-factly, and sometimes you know you're not supposed to say anything, but they say it anyway. So she, one of the children, looks over and says, Mommy, why doesn't Hannah have any children? Oh, dear. We, we don't know why she doesn't, but doesn't she want children? Oh, yes. She wants children. It must be really hard to disappoint your husband year after year. Oh, I bet she really wants children. Hannah, you want children, right? You, you probably just aren't praying well enough. You're, you're probably, you know, maybe God has it out for you. But let's not talk about that anymore, children. Let's talk about something to celebrate. Did you hear that mommy's pregnant again? Just devastating. You look at 
all of the factors that she's dealing with, her body betraying her, her rival being blessed openly in front of her and just shoving it in her face, and her husband oblivious to the entire situation. I mean, all of this is happening right under his nose. She has no relief, no support. Maybe you can relate to Hannah. Maybe you've experienced something like this, and maybe you can even relate to what the deepest source of pain is in a situation like this. You see, as you look at her situation, you, you come to understand that all the lines of sorrow point back in a single direction. In fact, the text tells us that. It says twice in the text, verse 5 and verse 6, that someone's responsible for this situation. It says, the Lord closed her womb. The Lord closed her womb. And she's a smart girl. She's read her Bible. She knows who God is. She knows that if if God wanted to act and, and work in her situation, that he could just simply provide a child for her and it would happen. And that sometimes is the most painful reality of it all when you're dealing with such suffering. You you look and you if you know who God is, you know that God can alleviate the pain. You know that he's even ordained the situation. And then your heart goes through this messy dynamic where you start wondering, is God against me? Does God hate me? Have I done something wrong that has caused God to bring this about in my life? Why, God? But I want to tell you from the Word of God this morning that God never does these things because He's out to get you. And God never, for one second, is losing control of a situation. It's not as if Satan is off having a heyday and God's trying to play catch-up in this situation. No, really, when you go through pain like Hannah's going through, you, you have two choices, two ways of looking at God dealing with the situation. I mean, on one hand, you can look at God as the source of your despair. Or on the other hand, you can look at Him as your best hope. You see, all throughout the Bible, we need to remember that that God's never promised us the perfect life, but God has given us all kinds of promises. And ultimately, God promises in the Scriptures to save us and to care for us, and that there's never a situation that is beyond God's ability to redeem. Now, Hannah, she is a model to us. She is a mentor from the Bible to us. Because she clings to that truth. And as she clings to that truth, it leads her to make this bold step of faith. And we see that in the next part of the story. Pick up with me at verse 9. The text says that after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. 
Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, he took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. I love what Paul Miller says in his book, A Praying Life. He says that when you come to God in prayer, you must come to God overwhelmed with life, come to God with your wandering mind, and come to Him messy. You you know, I love that because I always get the cart before the horse. I don't know about you, but there's something broken in me that believes that I've got to kind of polish the surface of my inner self before I'm able to come to God. Like if if there's a moral knot in my life or something messy, I've got to unravel that and then I can present God with the completed product. But that's wrong. He's the one that takes the knot out of your hands and He unravels it and hands it back to you. The completed project. You know, Miller says then, if that's the case, then probably the best thing we could do is unlearn some of what we've learned about prayer so that we can really start praying. And Eli needed to do that. I mean, he had stuffed prayer into this theological box. He sees this woman over here who's just pouring her heart out before the Lord. And because it's not their their formulaic prayers, their outspoken prayers, he thinks that she's drunk in the temple. She's not drunk. She's really praying. I'll tell you, You see some awesome things about prayer from Hannah. I mean, first, notice that, again, she comes to God messy. Verse 10, I mean, she's a complete mess. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. The thing that we need to understand about pain is that pain is deeply personal. Deeply personal. Even if someone has gone through a similar experience that you have gone through, they didn't go through it in the same way. They didn't experience what you experienced. So when you go through pain, and many of you have been through pain, you know that there is this lonely space in pain. Where I feel like I'm all alone, like I'm trying to express my heart and and pour out my spirit, and it seems like there's few people, if anyone, that gets it. But what the Bible's telling us is God gets it. God understands, and God is patiently willing to listen to your pain. See, this, this whole prayer thing, we get it messed up. We make it too complicated. Prayer 
is simply, if I'm just going to boil it down to its most basic element, it's talking to God. It's talking to Him. It's not about fancy words. It's not about length. It's not about intensity. It's, it's bringing my limits to the limitless one. And as I pour my heart out to this God, He listens to me, and He chooses to respond to my prayers in the, the manner that He chooses to do so. And if that's the case, if prayer is just simply talking to God, that means anyone can pray. Anyone. Like, even if you're not dealing with a hard situation, you can talk to God. Or when you're desperate, you can talk to God. Or even if you've never uttered a word to God in your life, you can talk to God. Because, let me break it to you, you know how to talk. You do, and some of you know how to talk a lot. So we can all talk to Him. We can all offer our prayers to Him. Hannah also teaches us something else about prayer. See, she acknowledges God's ownership of her situation. And we see that in verse 11, O Lord of hosts. If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant, remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. You see, she's not bargaining with God God's not some kind of, you know, lever system that you pull, vending machine, whatever you want to call it, where you say, oh, you know, I want these five things, God, and you give them to me. He's not a quid pro quo kind of God. He's not the kind of God where you say, if you do this, then I'll do this. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Hannah doesn't look at God that way. She's acknowledging in this prayer God's ownership, and God owns everything. If, if she's going to receive a child from God, then it would be a gift from God. And you recognize that when someone gives you a gift, they were the first owner of that gift. Which is true of all of our children. Your children don't ultimately belong to you. They're not yours. They're God's children. He's their father first, even before I'm their father. I have a responsibility. I'm a steward. I'm supposed to raise them. But, but I can't have a, a tight grip over their lives. I, I, I can't control the outcomes of their heart and their choices and their decision making. In fact, there's so many spaces where I actually need to back away and stop interjecting myself and start going to the prayer closet instead because they're His not mine. And Hannah saw that. So she offers this precious child back to the Lord. In fact, later on as she's bringing Samuel to the temple to present him in verse 28, I'll read to you a commentator's translation. She said this, For this child I prayed, and Yahweh gave me my asking which I asked for him. And I have also given back giving back what was asked to Yahweh. All the days he lives, he is one that is asked for Yahweh. Even in her place of desperation, you know, if you've prayed for a child for a long time, the temptation is to want to kind of protect that child, right? To wrap them around with bubble wrap and make sure that nothing ever happens to that child. 
But Hannah is showing us what biblical faith and generosity looks like. She comes asking with an open hand. If you give to me, I'll give back. And that's what real faith looks like. You trust God so much that when he gives to you, you're willing to even more give back from the things you have received. Let's look at one more aspect of prayer, and this, this one I love. You see, in this act of prayer, Hannah is teaching us that the very act of prayer itself is a gift from God. If you look at verse 18, it tells us that she leaves this prayer no longer sad, You see, prayer wasn't valuable to her because, again, she's not treating God as a vending machine. She's not uh, trying to just get something from God. No, prayer is valuable to her because the God she's talking to is her treasure. When we're praying, we are acting out in faith. That's what prayer is all about. We're rejecting the lies. We're, we're not subscribing to the system that says in our mind that God's not in control. God's not going to take care of my situation. God's not going to care. No, we're boldly saying the exact opposite. That I believe. That I believe He's not abandoned me. That I believe that He cares. That I believe that He can redeem And as Hannah is crying out in prayer, she's also being comforted because she comes to the realization, this is what I really believe. God is good. He hasn't abandoned me. He cares. And that's a gift. I love what Spurgeon said. He said that anything is a blessing which makes us pray. Anything. How is your prayer life when it comes to your problems? And you've got problems, right? I know you do. I've got them. You look at the world, you look at your own personal lives, lost loved ones, family members, people you struggle with, sinful patterns that just seem to keep reemerging. You learn to talk to God about those things. Maybe a simple place to start is just to start listing them out. You ever just sat down and kind of confronted your problems, looked at them on a piece of paper, and then allowed, allow that list to, to drive your heart towards prayer to God. Start talking to Him about each problem. Tell Him why you're scared. Tell Him about what you're thinking. This could happen. Ask Him to help you Trust Him in the midst of that problem. And move then from the problems to a better space. Gratitude. I think that gratitude is the solution to anxiety and fear and stress. When you start looking at what God's giving you in your life, and you start listing out those things, it's like turning the ship, right? It it takes your mind and it changes the trajectory of your thinking. That's why Hannah, of course, I believe, leaves her situation feeling like God has met her. Now, if we ended this story here, if it was just Hannah receiving comfort, then we would really have an incomplete picture because God does more than bring about comfort in her life. He also acts in time and space and reality on behalf of his people. And that's what we see in these miraculous births. I love that word, remembered. It's in verses 19 and 20. Let's read that real quick. It says, They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, 
And then they went back to the house of Ramah, and Alka knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord, there it is, remembered. Circle that word in your Bible if you have your Bible with you. That's an important word. And in due time she conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. I love that word. Now, it doesn't mean that something fell out of God's mind and then re-entered back into his mind again. No, it really means that he's decided that now's the time to move the next part of my plan forward. You see the word in the story of Noah when he's on the ark and he's been in this giant flood situation and it's a global situation. The world's been wiped out. You see it at a national level in the story of Israel in Exodus chapter 2 when the Bible says that God remembered the covenant that he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now we see it in a personal level with Hannah. God remembers. And that's really what these miraculous births are all about. They're about God moving his story forward. It's pointing us towards Christmas. And here's this truth that we learn from God in this story, that God loves to use the unlikely, the impossible, because this is how he gets more glory. Now, we saw last week that he did the impossible by producing a child and two individuals that were past due. And this week, he opens the womb of a woman whose womb has been closed. Now, I believe that Hannah, just like Sarah, laughed when she realized that she was pregnant. I mean, it was just a joyful moment in her life. And she realized that God had not forgotten her. In fact, she names her son Samuel, which is a reminder to everyone that this child is from the Lord. And why does God show us these things? Is he telling you that if you pray hard enough that he'll give you things? I think we've dismantled that already. But God's telling us these things to point us to a greater reality. He's telling us that he's acted and is acting in history to bring about a full and final salvation. That's what the story of Samuel points to. Look at Hannah's prayer in Samuel 2, uh, 1 Samuel 2, 1 and 2. She prays, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. That's what it's all about. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. That's what the miraculous births are about. The miraculous births are about a God who saves his people. He meets them in their lowliest places. He hears their pain. And ultimately, he's working all things together to produce this full and final salvation that would come through Jesus. Now, I was reminded of that in a modern context while I was in Beirut, Lebanon. A man who was from a Kurdish-Syrian-Islamic background. I'm not going to share his name just for abundance of caution. He told me his story, how he came to know the Lord. I, I can't remember exactly where he was. We were speaking through translation, so sometimes you kind of 
missed some of the details, but I believe he was in Lebanon and he was in a village and there was some kind of military skirmish happening. He saw two ladies and he ran and he helped them and brought them to a place of safety. Well, it turns out that these two ladies were American missionaries. So they exchanged contact information with him. He goes about his day, goes home, goes to bed that night, and he has a dream. And he's dreaming, he encounters Jesus. And Jesus is holding a gift, and Jesus offers this gift to this man. So he wakes up and he interprets the dream to mean that someone's going to bring me a gift sometime in the near future. Well, a couple of days later, here's a knock on his door. Here are the missionary ladies with their husbands now, and they come and they present him with a Bible. Now, the man is from an Islamic background, and they begin to tell him about Jesus. And he said, you know, my mind was pretty closed off to anything they had to say. In fact, I was a pretty poor guy, and the only reason I was letting them come around was because I thought they might give me some money. So he kept letting them come around, keep telling them about Jesus, but quietly he was just kind of like hoping that they would give him some money. Was the more they're coming around, his son begins to latch on to the message. And he was looking at this particular son. He said that he had a significant struggle in his heart because that son had suffered from epilepsy from the time of his early childhood. And so he just said to the missionaries, he said, you know, how am I going to trust in this Jesus? What, what can this Jesus do? Uh, I have this son and he's suffering severely. And, and what am I supposed to do about that? And the missionaries look him dead in the eye and they say, you know, Maybe you should ask Jesus to help your son to heal him. So, he's got nothing to lose. What does he do? He prays. And he asks Jesus to heal his son. And I'm telling you, this is what he told me. He says he prayed the prayer and his son was healed immediately of epilepsy. He didn't have another episode from the time that he had prayed. In fact, he was so perplexed by it that he took his son to the doctor. And the doctor starts evaluating the son. He does a brain scan. He does all these things. And he says, I don't know who prescribed that your son has epilepsy, but you don't know what they're talking about because he has none of the signs or indications of someone who has epilepsy. Well, the father looks back at the doctor and he says, you're the one that prescribed it a couple years ago. <laughs> the doctor says, what happened? And the father said, I prayed to Jesus. And it was like right there that it clicked. And he realized that he needed to put his faith in Christ. You know, when someone in this context makes a decision like that, it comes at great cost to them. Um, he was telling me that in his Kurdish Islamic background that that's just a great offense to the community to leave the faith and he left the faith. He started being persecuted. He was falsely brought on charges twice and imprisoned. People burned his house down. And when they burned his house down, his daughter was caught in the fire and she was burned severely. They beat his son. He showed me a picture and he had been beaten so severely that he had to have 26 stitches in his head. 
his wife when she had removed the hijab from her head, which is a sign of I'm leaving Islam, I'm becoming a Christian. People will beat her openly in the streets. He said, and through it all, though, I am so thankful that I know the Lord. Because he's, he's with me in the midst of these sufferings, and he's with me in the midst of everything that I'm going through, and I know that I've experienced him in his power. In fact, this same man is going into the prison falsely accused, and he's sharing Christ with Islamic terrorists. You see, that is God's way. That's God's purposes in the world. And this is happening all over in the Middle East. I heard many stories like this. God responding to prayers. God intervening in the lives of people who are just like Hannah. God working out his salvation. But our problem is sometimes we can compartmentalize and say, well, those things are just happening over there. But that's not true. See, God's doing the same type of work here, too, in your life and in my life. He's working out his great salvation. He sent his son, Jesus, into the world as a baby. God became flesh. God dwelt among us. The Bible says that that baby, Jesus, grew up to be the man, Jesus, and he lived a perfectly righteous life, a life that you couldn't live, a life that I couldn't live. In fact, his righteous life was so pleasing before God that he could be offered up as a sacrifice on our behalf, a perfect sacrifice. They were slaughtering thousands of animals back then just to cover over sins. But Jesus could be offered up once and for all as the perfect Lamb of God for you and me. He died in our place. We get to receive his righteousness He took on our sinfulness. And the Bible says that if you want to receive that miraculous gift, that the way you receive it is so simple. Costs you nothing, costs him everything. By faith. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you ever received the greatest gift that there is to receive at Christmas? It's Jesus. And all of these stories are pointing in that direction. In fact, let me just ask you to get quiet before the Lord for a moment. Just bow your head with me. Close your eyes. Give everyone like the, the space of quietness. And I want to give you an opportunity to trust Jesus if you're a Savior, if you've never done that before. If God's speaking to your heart this morning and and you're saying, you know, I need to respond to Jesus today, I want to invite you to just raise your hand quietly. No one will disturb you so that I can be praying for you. Just slip your hand up and I'll pray for you and give you the opportunity to pray to receive him. Thank you. I see you too. Anyone else? Thank you. Pray along with me in your heart. Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you rose again from the dead on the third day. I I commit my life in the best way I know how to your care and your control. I commit to follow you.
thank you for my salvation. In your name I pray. Amen.